All right. Today, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 23, 23rd Psalm. Probably a very well-known scripture to most of you. Probably a lot of you grew up reciting it from time to time like I did. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. That's for sure. Dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That says it all. How many of you know what psalm actually means? What the word means? Psalm. Anybody? It's a song. It's a song of praise to God. We got a whole book of them, 150 of them. It's believed that out of those 150, at least 73 of them were written by David and probably several more. Basically, King David wrote the first hymnal. Several of the Psalms were sung during the annual feast as they made their way up to Jerusalem. They were called Songs of Ascent meaning they sang them as they went up to Jerusalem. Even though they may have been going down, Jerusalem was up. It was elevated higher than anything else around it. So even if you were going down, going south or whatever, you were still going up to Jerusalem. So they called them songs of ascent. Some of the psalms actually give the tune that it's supposed to be sung to. For example, Psalm 56, 1, or 56, Psalm 56 in the NIV starts out for the director of music to the tune of a dove on distant oaks of David. So it's a psalm written by David to be sung to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. Anybody know that tune? Pat? No, you don't know that tune either. You know, we don't know what what these tunes were. They very well may have been secular songs. We don't know. It may very well have been a secular song. It may have been a song of praise, but we don't, just don't know that. Charles Wesley actually wrote over 6,000 hymns that are very popular. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I believe, is one of them. Tons and tons of them. And a lot of those were written to secular songs. He wrote the words and put it to music that people already knew because they were popular secular songs. One of my favorite hymns, which is Amazing Grace, and one of my all-time theme songs is the theme from Gilligan's Island. So imagine how pleased I was when I found out that you could sing Amazing Grace to the theme song of Gilligan's Island. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. Hey. You didn't know what you were in for today, did you? You really don't have to go out and tell people that's what you learned in church today. (laughs) Praising God with song has been something that people have done since the beginning of time. It's a great way to tell God what's on your heart. To... Remind yourself who God is. That's why we do what we do up here. 
That's why we sing songs every Sunday, to praise God. If you listen to the words of these songs, they come from the Bible. They're scripture. Praising God with music is an awesome way to spend your day. I love to work with Christian music playing. It just makes everything seem to go better. Especially when I hit my thumb with a hammer. (laughs) Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. No, it really does help you to stay focused on God. Because there's a lot out there that tries to keep us from focusing on God. Another psalm, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 4, says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. It says, God put a new song in my mouth. That doesn't mean all of a sudden he was able to start singing once he started worshiping God. It means he changed his tune. He changed his direction. He had a new way of looking at life. You ever hear that old expression? You better change your tune, young man or young lady. That doesn't mean you're supposed to start singing. That means you better change the way you're acting. He put a new song in my mouth. Another psalm, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, is the 100th psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. See, there's a recurring theme, singing praise to God and God's people being called sheep. I have to say that's not a real flattering thing. If you know anything about sheep, sheep are not the brightest animals on the planet. Sheep are downright dumb. Sheep get lost. Sheep can't take care of themselves. Sheep do a lot of stupid things. So why would he compare us to sheep? Oh. <laughs> Never mind. Let's take a closer look at that 23rd Psalm again. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, as a kid, I didn't see that there were two separate thoughts here. And I kind of think it's probably because we were reciting it, just kind of mindlessly saying it and not really knowing what it meant. The thing was memorize scripture, but there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on understanding what the scripture was saying. So I always heard, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, to me, that's like saying, yeah, he's my shepherd, but I don't want him. No. The Lord's my shepherd. I don't have any needs. Like one of the best translations of that is from one of the newer versions of the NIV. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Has anyone ever had the position of being a shepherd? Anybody know anybody that's a shepherd? Not a real common job around here. Do you know the most famous shepherd that we probably all know is King David? Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now again, you know, I mean... 
just me, but when I think about green pastures, pastures, a place where animals roam, I don't know that I want to lay down there. You know, my dogs roam in the backyard, and I don't really want to lay down there most of the time. But to a sheep, that was okay. Lying down in a green pasture, that meant a place to rest. That meant food, because the green was edible. Hey, food and rest, I could get into that. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And that's what David's saying here that God does for him. He gives him his daily bread. He leads him to a green pasture where he has food. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9 says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of us would be willing to ask for just what we need? That's all I want, Lord, just what I need. Just enough to stay alive. Not too much, not too little, just enough. That's kind of a hard thing to ask for, isn't it? Because if we're asking for something, it's usually not just the basics. It's all this and this and, and that and the other thing too. That's a tough thing to ask for, but that's all we need. He leads me beside still waters. And that's important, waters, especially to a sheep. You figure there's like three kinds of water out there. There's stagnant water, which I wouldn't want to drink out of. Probably the sheep don't either. But then again, they're kind of dumb, so who knows? And then there's really fast rushing water. See, the thing with sheep, they get into the water. And if they got all that wool over their body and that gets wet... And it's gone away a ton, and it'll tip them right over into the water, and they'll drown because they can't get out of it. So still water was good. Still water was fresh water, but not going to wash them away. So food and water, basic necessities, daily bread. Verse number three, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. Wow, that's some pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? The law of the Lord is perfect. See, God takes care of our physical needs and our spiritual needs also. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I used to have a hard time understanding what that meant for his name's sake. Why is it for his name's sake if he's leading me? Because taking care of me, if I'm his sheep, gives glory to him. Because he says he is mine. And he takes care of us. So it's for his name's sake. It brings him honor and glory and recognition. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. See, God doesn't promise us that we won't have trouble. He does promise us that he'll be with us through that trouble. A lot of Christians think, or a lot of people think that Christians shouldn't have trouble. And there's some Christians out there that believe it too. 
I've heard Christians say to other people, if you give your life to God, you won't have any more problems. Seriously? What did I do wrong? Jesus made it abundantly clear. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll have a lot of it. Having God in your life does not mean the absence of trouble. It does mean the presence of God through the trouble. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, they bring him peace. Paul called that peace the peace that passes understanding. Jeremiah 17 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's peace. That's comfort. Knowing that God is with us and protecting us. There's something here you may have noticed. He goes from talking about God to talking to God. He starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. He does this, he does that. And now he says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. That's kind of a common thing in some of the Old Testament writings, especially the Psalms. It goes from being about God for other people to understand and changes to being to God as a way of praising and blessing him. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So what is a rod and a staff? I'm glad you asked that. I just happen to have something here that we'll use as an illustration. This is nothing like a staff. No, it is a little bit like a staff because it has a little hook on it. I couldn't find a real one, but I thought this would do the trick. A shepherd's hook is probably about yay tall and has a nice big hook on it. And the shepherd would use it for pulling the sheep out of the water when they get in too deep or off the hillside as they're hanging there going, bah! or pulling them away to the right direction, different things like that. This was sometimes also called a rod, but a rod also is pretty much just a basic stick. Now, probably, again, much, much taller than this one and, you know, more tree-like than this one. So you could do a lot with a couple of these things, you know. Uh, say a, a wolf or a fox come in after the sheep, you know, you could do a little poking and whacking and bam, get away, chase them away. So... The shepherd was well prepared. He had weapons to protect the sheep as well as things to move the sheep along and guide them in the right direction and to save the sheep and help them. Right? Tools of the trade. If any of you are looking to be a shepherd, let me know. I'll let you borrow these. Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 40. Another very well-known passage, subtitled, David and Goliath. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokol, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokol and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span. That is over nine feet tall. He was a big man. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. It was probably junk mail. No, seriously, mail is, you've probably seen them on TV in some of these movies. It's the little steel rings that they would kind of knit together to be used as armor to protect yourself. That was called mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And I did look that up. I should have wrote it down. I think it was like 65 pounds, the shaft of the spear. Can you imagine throwing that? I'd have a hard time picking it up. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The guy would be afraid too. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So for 40 days, this guy is taunting the Israelites, scaring them to death, saying, bring me somebody, any of you, come out here and fight me. So imagine the humility that they were going through. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines, Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Was it not but a word? 
And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And we know the rest of the story. He struck down the Philistine. He killed him with one stone. When he's talking about a sling, he's not talking about this kind of a slingshot. He's talking about a piece of cloth that you tied, not tied, but you put the stone in it and you whipped it like this. Can you imagine hitting anything like that? That would have to take some practice. One stone, center of the forehead, put him down. David was a loyal shepherd. He cared about his sheep and was willing to risk his life for their safety. He was also loyal to God. He risked his life to stop Goliath from humiliating God's people. Now, anybody willing to go up against a bear or a lion with these things? How about a guy that's nine foot tall? They don't make a stick big enough for me to go after a bear with it. I'm sorry. But David trusted in God. He believed that God would protect him. He had faith. Verse 5 of the 23rd Psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now we're not totally sure what he means by that, but it could be a couple of things. First of all, it could be that, you know, I'm surrounded by my enemies, but God still provides everything that I need. He's put a table before me and filled it abundantly. Or it could be, that God has taken those enemies and made them friends. And now they're eating at my table with me. We don't know. We just don't know. Either way, God takes care of us. You anoint my head with oil. It was customary back in those days when you were happy, when things were good, to anoint your head with oil. Quite frankly, I get up in the morning, my hair is a little oily. I don't like it. Don't care much for it. But that was the way they did it. If they were grieving or fasting, sometimes they would put ashes on their head. Wouldn't really want those either. Kind of like the natural stuff, you know. Some of you may remember back in the, the 60s, 
there was a uh, hair product called Brill Cream. A little dab will do you. You put it on your hair and slick it back. Then Vitalis came along. And they had the commercials. You still using that greasy kid stuff? Get over it. Because Vitalis was more of the natural look. But you know what? Brill Cream, I don't know if you knew it, but you can still buy Brill Cream today. And Vitalis. They're still around. We don't really know why you would put oil on your head. But it was to show people your joy. And again, with the ashes, it was to show your sadness or, or the fact that you were fasting. Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. My cup overflows. That's about as simple as it can get. He had an abundance. He had more than he needed. God gives us more than we need. You know, we went to the Dominican. We've been going every year for a long time now. These people do not have an abundance. When I look at what we have, when I look at so many Christians that have so much stuff and they aren't nearly as happy as these people who have literally next to nothing. I don't think I've told you this story before, and if I have, forgive me. Last year when we went, we built a latrine in a little area that about five or six families were going to be using. Simple outhouse, hole in the ground. God bless you. Cement top that you would sit on and a tin shed around it. In this little area, there was a, a gentleman who was a very friendly guy. Might have had a little mental issues because, well, it doesn't matter. I, th I think he did. But he was so kind. Anytime he saw one of the females standing up or, or one of us older folks standing, he would bring these plastic chairs to us and, and try to get us to sit down. And we're sitting there taking a break, my wife and I talking, and I hear somebody hollering behind us. And she looks at me and says, he wants you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I look over, and he's, he's kind of off in the distance, and he's, I'm like, okay, you know, why does, why does he want me over there? So I go over, and he takes me to his little house, which if the shed in my backyard looked like this little house, I'd be saying, honey, we need a new shed. He had one light bulb in his shed, which was amazing that he even had electricity to it. But he takes me over, and he points onto the floor. He's got laid out about 30 uh, mangoes that he has been gathering up off the ground and putting them there to ripen. And he speaks Spanish, and I don't, and he's communicating with me and saying enough that I knew he wanted me to take these mangoes and give them to our people because he was so grateful for what we were doing for him. He lived in a shed that I wouldn't want in my backyard, and he's given stuff to us. It just blew my socks off. That's what it means when David said, my cup overflows. We have so much more than we need. And God continues to provide abundantly. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of my favorite passages is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span, to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, ain't that the truth? Anybody here not have enough trouble every day without looking for tomorrows? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. If God is our shepherd, if we listen to his voice, if we follow him, we will not need anything. We will have everything that we need. We will lack nothing. Being a shepherd was really considered a low-life job. Shepherds were basically the, the low man on the totem pole in society. David's own father didn't even consider him as a possibility when Samuel came to him the prophet Samuel, Samuel came to him and told him that God wanted to anoint one of his sons as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve for Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peace, peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. 
Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. See, God said that David was a man after his own heart. God sees what we don't. God sees inside of us. He doesn't look at our outward appearance. Doesn't matter how tall we are. Doesn't matter what we look like. Doesn't matter how we're dressed. He looks at our heart. So the word shepherd is translated from another word that's, that's pretty common to, to most of us. The word pastor. You know what that means? It means shepherd. The word pastor means shepherd. A pastor is called to lead, guide, protect, restore, care for. But I hate to tell you, if a bear comes after one of you, you're probably going to die. <laughs> I ain't going after it. <laughs> now, some people put pastors up on pedestals as though they're right up there next to God. And sadly enough, there's a lot of pastors out there who put themselves up on those pedestals as though they're right up there next to God. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's ironic because I don't think there's any irony when it comes to God, but God chose the shepherds to be the first people that heard about the birth of Jesus Christ. I don't think that was a coincidence. There's also one other shepherd that's mentioned in the Bible. John chapter 10, 1 through 18. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. David risked his life for his sheep. He risked his life for his God to stop Goliath from humiliating the armies of Israel. Jesus gave up his life for his sheep because he knew that we could not pay the penalty that we have all earned. So he paid it for us. Whose voice do you listen to? Who is your shepherd? Do you follow someone who's willing to die for you? 
If Jesus is your shepherd, do you know his voice? There's lots of other voices that are trying to get us to follow them, trying to get us to turn away from what we should be doing. I hear people say all the time, God may close a door, but he opens a window. And I've said this before because it's one of those things that really, it's kind of my pet peeve. I say, God may close a door, but he opens a window. You know, God may close the door because he don't want you going through it. Guess what? Satan knows how to open windows. Satan knows how to open windows. And he knows that we're foolish enough to go against what God's trying to keep us from doing. He will make a way for us. It ain't the right way. We need to listen to God's voice. If you talk with God regularly, you will recognize his voice. And if you're not sure, ask him. God, I think this is what you're telling me, but I'm not sure. Please make it abundantly clear to me. When we wake up in the morning, do we ask God to guide us throughout the day to make the right choices, to make the right decisions? Or do we spend the night asking God to forgive us for all the wrong choices and wrong decisions we made? I'm not saying that just because you get up and ask God to to guide you and lead you that you won't be asking him to forgive you later, but hopefully you'll be asking for a little bit less, especially if you're listening to his voice. Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, if we are believers... We are called to be shepherds to the people around us, to the people that God brings into our lives, especially if they aren't believers. If you were standing on the street and a stranger was crossing the street and they were going to get hit by a car, would you not warn them? Then why would you not warn somebody who's going to spend eternity burning in hell? There's no reason that we shouldn't be doing that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
The word Jerusalem means city of peace. Someday there's going to be a new city of peace that comes down from heaven. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, will be in that city. Will you be dwelling in that city with him forever? Will he be your shepherd? Let's pray. Father God, again, I'm just without words to try to comprehend and explain and understand how you could love someone as filthy and dirty as us. You not only love us, but you were willing to sacrifice your own son to die for us, to pay our penalty so that we can live in the new Jerusalem forever. So that we can hold and touch and be with the Prince of Peace forever, forever. Father God, we thank you. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to be shepherds to the people around us that don't know you. To guide them, to lead them to Jesus Christ. Father God, if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their shepherd, Lord, I pray that you would put an unbearable burden on their heart right now. That they could not stand to be until they make that right. Until they have that assurance to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they will spend eternity in your glorious kingdom of heaven with the Prince of Peace as their shepherd. Lord, thank you for loving us for caring for us, for guiding us, for saving us. Thank you for being the good shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.